Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hello, everyone. It's Michael McNutt with Weedy. In celebration of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Weedy presents a special Chief Information Security Officer Summit from our recent national conference. Our esteemed panelists included Eric Decker, Assistant Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer with Intermountain Healthcare, Jackie Monson, Chief Technology Risk Officer, Chief Information Security Officer, and Chief Privacy Officer with Sutter Health, and Omar Kawaja, Chief Information Security Officer with Highmark Health. Our moderators were Marilyn Zygmunt Luke of AHIP and Tina Grandy from the Healthcare Leadership Council, who also serve as Weedy's Privacy and Security Workgroup Co-Chairs. This is Tina and um, Marilyn. It's it's great to be back with you again. Um, Marilyn, did you want to say anything more about yourself and and our uh, panelists? I just wanted to welcome everybody today. We have a very informative session lined up. We have industry leaders who are really experts in their field joining us today, and um, we'll introduce them in a minute. But as Sam mentioned, I'm Marilyn Zygmunt Luke. I'm vice president with AHIP. I am co-chair with Tina of the Weedy Privacy and Security Workgroup, and I've worked on privacy and security and cyber issues for the majority of my career, so very happy to be helping with this session today. Tina, why don't, um, if you want, you can introduce a little bit about yourself? Great. Marilyn, thank you. Yes, I'm Tina Grande with the Healthcare Leadership Council, and I, too, have been working in privacy and security issues for many years. I uh, chair a group called the Confidentiality Coalition that's housed inside the Healthcare Leadership Council. And our coalition represents all the sectors in the healthcare industry on privacy and security policy at the federal level. So it's very interesting topics. And of course, today we've got three panelists who are really deep experts in these issue areas. And we're really looking forward to hearing from what they have to say today. So thanks again, everyone, for being with us and to our panelists. And Marilyn, maybe I'll turn it back to you for introductions. Sure. I'd like to introduce Omar Kawaja. He is the CISO from Highmark Health. We also have joining us Eric Decker. He is the CISO from Intermountain Health. And Jackie Monson, she is the privacy and security leader for Sutter Health. So why don't we get started in terms of sort of setting the, the landscape and I'd ask the three of you to provide your perspectives on the last year in cybersecurity. There have been many challenges, many new events that have occurred, and we were hoping that you could briefly set the stage for what some of the challenges and successes were, and then later on we'll go a little bit deeper into some of the specific issues. Omar, why don't we start with you? Sure. You know, I'd say the last year, when, when COVID first hit, we were uh, we were met with a significant amount of uncertainty. We had a lot of questions being asked of us from the business, from our employees, from our customers. And like most other folks uh, at the start of the pandemic, we didn't have a lot of answers. So we replaced the, we tried to compensate for the uncertainty through as much clear communication as um, and possible, as possible, and that helped. Uh, in the world of cyber, we're used to surprises, so it was nice to be able to use those muscles in the face of COVID and the, and the pandemic and to be able to react and very quickly respond to it and put programs together in terms of what we needed to do to secure the enterprise, what we needed to do to continue to meet our commitments to our customers and regulators. And we also 
uh, spun up a work stream focused on how we help other parts of the organization. And uh, a lot of that was about how we would send our employees and give them the ability to work from home. It was also about how we would continue the delivery of care when it wasn't necessarily the situation that everyone wanted to come into our facility. So spinning up and, and uh, exploding the usage of telemedicine in the span of just a few short weeks um, and figuring out where possible, could we actually lower some of the, reduce some of the security controls for a period of time where we thought in the interest of the business and everything else that's going on uh, and, and behave like risk managers. So not as security professionals, because security professionals, we think of things in more of binary terms and more security is better than less security, but to think of it in risk management terms, in terms of what's the benefit of those controls versus the adverse impact of those, uh, of those controls. Um, you know, fast forward to where we are now, um, a lot of the team is uh, starting to face burnout, um, not only because of the pandemic, but one of the things that the pandemic kicked off is a thirst from the business and expectations from our customers to keep going, to do more, to deliver more. And the velocity with which the business is now moving is unlike anything that we've seen in the past. The part of the journey where we're on now is all about what can we do to create a more resilient workforce and a more resilient security program. And some of that is through assessments we're doing for our individuals, training that we're doing for individuals, making adjustments to the operating model of the security organization, making adjustments to the structure of the security organization, uh, making adjustments to how we partner and engage with the business and with our with our customers. And that part of the journey will likely continue for the next year. We, we don't expect things to be smooth sailing. There's still rocky road ahead. And the best and one of the best things we can do is to make our organization and our people as resilient as possible to prepare them for the journey ahead. Well, thanks, Omar. Those are really great points. Jackie, what about from your perspective? Yeah, it certainly feels like a blur thinking back that we've been almost in this pandemic for almost, um, you know, quite a year and a half, close to two years now. And I think there's just been a lot of uh, challenges, a lot of opportunities and a lot of successes. I would say the challenges immediately faced by the pandemic was a remote workforce, um, you know, rapidly telemedicine, rapidly expanding from, you know, a couple hundred visits to a few thousand visits a day you know, the research around the COVID, both the, the um, COVID data as we are collecting from seeing patients, uh, as well as now the vaccine data and, um, you know, doing research on health equity and a number of things. And I think, you know, watching the, the cybersecurity landscape just continue to increase from a threat landscape uh, while all of this is going on behind the scenes. And then, um, you know, the data sharing piece of it, you know, both data that um, we want to share and data that we don't necessarily want to share. Uh, you know, we had challenges with third parties who, you know, believe they had the right of access to it. And so I think all of those things created, you know, sort of the perfect storm of a lot of things at one time. And, um, you know, we're still feeling the effects of those, but I think, you know, the successes of it has been really focused on support 
supporting the business, um, supporting our patients and making sure that we're set up for success in everything that we're doing, whether it's, you know, telemedicine or expanding our remote work environment and changing just the way that we do things and then dealing with a threat landscape. Um, you know, we didn't anticipate having that many remote workers, you know, several um, thousand in a short period of time. And so what do we need to do differently from a security standpoint and, and how do we do that? And how do we set our workforce up to, up for success and both how they're accessing as well as what they're doing Um you know, we've seen a lot of workforce susceptible to social engineering that they might not have been susceptible to if they had a colleague sitting next to them and asked them if, you know, something seemed odd with what was going on. And so I think there's just a lot of uh, different things. I would say probably the biggest success is um, the continued focus on cyber. There was a lot of highlights. Unfortunately, there was a lot of uh, organizations who were impacted by cybersecurity attacks, which I used as leverage in my organization to make sure that we had the investments that we needed to um, actually address the cyber landscape and do things perhaps a little differently to best protect our patient data. Well, that's great. Um, Eric, you've been on the front lines for cyber uh, during the pandemic and for a long time. What are your perspectives on this? Yeah, so I'll just certainly echo everything Omar and uh, Jackie just said. I, I won't try to repeat it. <laughs> just put a pin on it. Like the, those are flex work, pandemic, uh, tele, telemedicine. All of those items are, are things that in the last 12, 18 months have been um, very different from uh, from 18 months before that. You know, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, from, a, from an impact perspective on the attacks, uh, depending on which stats you read and, and believe, um, you know, there were in, in 2020, there were uh, 90 health system facilities, uh, sorry, 90 systems and hundreds of facilities that were impacted by ransomware, which was a significant increase from the year before that. And so when you think about like, what are some of the, the big challenges, you know, the threat actors and the, and the level of sophistication of the threat actors and the underground economy that these threat actors operate under is just getting better. And, and, and the industry has to keep pace uh, with, with their level of sophistication. Um, you know, there's there's been some really good profiles. Um, I appreciate that some of the organizations that have been impacted by this are actually explaining what the levels of impact are. So as a, uh, an example, Scripps uh, just recently announced that their impact uh, to the ransomware event was 106 uh, million in, in total, uh, total impact. Uh, I believe 91 million of that was revenue recognition. And the University of Vermont Health Network just recently participated in a, uh, a study with uh, the American Society of Oncology, I believe, and they profiled what the actual impact uh, inside the organization was to their ransomware attack, which I think was very brave and admirable that they um, went public with what, what the, the true cost and the true impacts of these kinds of attacks can be. So, you know, ransomware is, is definitely going to be hot in the list and it's going to stay hot in the list. It's only going to get worse until uh, we figure out a way as an industry to deflect this and, and make it uh, that much more cost uh, prohibitive for the threat actors to actually try to operate in this manner. So I, I foresee that we will continue to have this problem for, for some time. Um, and then, you know, just uh, the other item I'll add to the mix is... The third-party risk, um, 
and and I don't, you know, when we think about third party, traditionally we think about third party in the sense of the third party has our data and the, and they can be compromised and that can cause a privacy breach and a data breach, you know, and absolutely that is a problem and a challenge and an issue. Uh, but there's also two other ways that the third parties have presented themselves as being problematic in the last year that's new. Uh, the, the first one uh, was them as a supply chain attack or a conduit attack into organizations. And there are a couple of incidents of that. Certainly Solar Winds was the big one uh, that came out. And then just here recently, earlier this year, the Casilla attack, where it was similar process where you're sort of embedding malware inside of uh, software updates that you would think would be safe and secure and, and they were untrusted. All of that is a means of getting inside an organization, a means of, of attacking through a third party. Uh, the other piece to, to note is, you know, we have to uh, certainly consider how the third parties themselves can be part of our mission critical operations and our clinical mission. Some third parties, you know, we, we went to the cloud and the cloud was good. Cloud is good. Uh, in that process of going to the cloud, we have to understand what actual impact on the business operations can there be if those services are unavailable. And you can't just fully uh, defer that business continuity and disaster recovery plan to the third party. And I think Electa showed us that, you know, with, with that particular incident that impacted more than 40 organizations uh, in uh, radiation oncology and oncology treatments. So, we're, we're going to see more of that kind of trend. Um, I know later on we'll talk about sort of what, what are the, what's the good news in all of this. You know, I think um, I, I'll just echo what, what Jackie and Omar had already said, but yeah, I think the cyber organizations are really maturing and, and the profession is really growing up because the, in part, you know, because of just how serious the consequences are if you don't do it. And, and so there's, there's a real um, there's a real focus on the leadership, on the the employees, and you know the skilling associated to all of that, uh, as well as a, a real focus on risk, as Omar sort of led with uh, that risk should be the foundation on how we discuss all of this, uh, and and ultimately how cyber just becomes part of the business and becomes yet just another business risk conversation and decision. Tina, do you want to take it from here in terms of getting deeper into some of the issues? I sure will, Marilyn. Thank you so much. And thanks for those high-level comments. They were very interesting. Uh, yeah, we thought maybe we would go down a, a level and talk a little deeper about some policy and some other um, issues that our audience may be interested in hearing about from a security standpoint, as well as privacy, where it makes sense to include. And the first one that we thought we could chat about is the recently finalized information blocking rules and as well as CMS interoperability rule that came out. And we know that this really signals, and we've known for a while, that the federal government is very intent on ensuring that the right to access by patients and designated caregivers is there, that, that people are able to get a hold of their own health information. It is, it's an important right, and I think we all are very supportive of it. But this push to get the information out and get it out as broadly as possible in, in, in whatever mean a patient or a consumer may want access to their information um, 
is 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 juxtaposed against an increasing security threat environment. And we thought we could ask the three of you about this sort of um, balancing act between pushing information out and the interoperability rules that have recently been released by the federal government and their effect on security issues. So um, maybe this go around, we'll start, let's start with Jackie. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, very supportive of the idea of getting patients information quicker. I think, um, you know, we we did not anticipate the pandemic, obviously, and, and that's just, I think, complicated things with the level of information that's being shared and sort of the push for that with those rules and regulations during a time when, um, you know, really healthcare across the industry is responding to crisis, and we still are today. And so it's just one more thing to add to that pile of stuff that's going on in the sense that, um, you know, we've seen more amendment requests than we ever have before. And when you're in the middle of dealing with data requests, cyber surge, um, you name it, it's just one more challenge. And so I think the timing of it couldn't be worse. Um, but, you know, I think all healthcare organizations right now are just working through it the best that we can and are, you know, facilitating with the patients. I will say the other uh, factor, at least a helpful factor, is last year we got uh, an anti-kickback uh, exception to allow healthcare organizations to provide technology um, to physicians. And at least from my organization's perspective, that was a huge help. Um, so we have a number of uh, physician groups, um, close to 5,000 actually, that we donate our electronic health record to in an effort to help them with information sharing, um, you know, and dialoguing back and forth with our mutual patients. And one benefit to the CMS uh, rule or exception is that we were allowed to provide uh, cybersecurity technology to these 5,000 physicians. And as a result of that, I actually just got the numbers yesterday, and um, we saved them from 83,000 threats in that period of time. And to me, that's really significant in the sense that we're moving in the right direction, but I'm worried about all the other uh, small physician practices, small provider groups who don't have the same means that maybe Sutter Health does to provide that level of technology. Because as we push forward, just like we did with the EHR donation program, as we push forward with the desire to keep sharing information, I'm worried about um, the cybersecurity aspect of it and whether we're actually protecting the data that we're sharing at a much quicker, faster pace. Fascinating to bring in that anti-kickback um, element as well. Very interesting. So Omar, what are your thoughts on some of these uh, final rules coming out of the government? Um, I know in particular the health plans had their own interoperability rule coming, coming from CMS with, with requirements. Um, how does that work into the world of security from, from your standpoint? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll reiterate what Jackie said. This is very positive. Um, all of us are consumers of healthcare, and as consumers of healthcare, this is a big win for us. We get many more options uh, by which we can uh, gain access to our data and make use of it in, in ways that are simpler, more valuable, more uh, potentially even actionable, if that's something that, that we choose to do. And, you know, my... My organization, we get super excited when we get to secure something and we really understand the value of it. And 
as we got the opportunity to secure this and we started thinking about this maybe about a year ago, everyone was excited because this was tangible. We could see how this would benefit us. Uh, we also know when uh, things become more open, more available, more accessible via more applications in real time, that also means that the risks related with it go up. And um, I, I'm a firm believer as, as long as we're given an appropriate amount of time, we can, we can almost always configure and enable the business to do whatever they need to do securely. And in this situation, it was a matter of uh, enabling a lot of APIs and allowing uh, many, many third parties to be able to connect to them. And these organizations aren't necessarily ones that we have relationships with or we've reviewed their security programs. And so applying a zero trust model to enable uh, our members' data, our patient data to be accessible to multiple third parties and uh, the applications that they built, it was um, a little bit of a, of a challenge. And um, I think there's more work that continues to need to be doing done to educate individuals. How do I decide whether I should give a certain app permission to access all of my data um, at Highmark or at Allegheny Health Network? Uh, so just because, and, and, you know, I'm taking on some of that responsibility by giving, giving that permission. So there's a part of it that as an enterprise security program, we can address and we can do our part, but there's also a part of it where the individual has some responsibility. And I think in some cases, they're not entirely clear that, uh, they have some of that, uh, responsibility on their, on themselves. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and Eric, um, you know, Omar brings up something very interesting that I think does fall in the world of these interoperability rules that have been coming out of the federal government. Um, I'd be very interested in hearing from you not only about just generally how security fits into um, the push from the federal government to become more interoperable, but also that idea of verifying um, and the risk associated with someone saying, you know, I want access to my information. How do you verify that that's really the person um, asking for the information? And if it's a third party asking on behalf of a person, you know, what, what kind yeah. of security elements come into that as well? Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I, let me first start by saying, uh, I was going to tell a little bit of a story. So I, there's a urgent care facility that's right next to me. Um, and they're not small, you know, they're, they're kind of, I'm in Chicago um, and they're kind of all throughout Chicago. And, you know, it's like one of those things, yeah, especially during COVID, it's like, I got a head cold. I was like kind of coughing a little bit. I'm just going to go get a test. What's the clearest one that's, you know, closest one that's next to me. And so I went there, everything was fine. Um, and, and I wanted to send that information over to my primary care doctor so that, that she had it, you know, so that could be part of my, my whole record. And, um, and so I sent a note over to them and I was like, you know, Hey, how do I get access to the portal? Like that, that you, you guys have, so I can just, you know, grab that information and send it over. And their answer back to me was, well, there is no portal. We'll charge you, you know, the, whatever the per fee per page fee is to get the, the paper note. And, and this is post interoperability go live. And I wrote them back and I said, wow, you guys are <laughs> way behind the times on this. And you, you have a long way to go because um, if you're not aware, you know, this is not the message that you're supposed to be giving your patients. Um, so that that was interesting. Um, so I, and I think the point of that story is 
this all happened in the midst of the pandemic, although it's not new. I mean, patient portals and, and such have been around for some time. It was all part of meaningful use to kind of get the, the information digitized and into the patient's hands. Um, so it's not an entire excuse to say, well, interoperability, you know, how do we how do we get this done while we're also trying to you know deal with a pandemic? They did, you know, federal government did delay enforcement um, after the initial go around. Now, as it relates to securing of the actual uh, apps and identity proofing and so forth, you know, there are <clears throat> there are ways to do that, that um, there are services actually that are that are out there that you can leverage uh, much in the same way that the financial systems, you know, you can open up a, an online banking account without ever having to go into a store, into the into a branch office and verify who you are. There's ways you can do that digitally. Uh, and uh, some some organizations are using those kinds of services. Some organizations are not. Uh, some of it depends on if you're an established patient with within your healthcare organization and you've been vetted and verified as you go to the healthcare organization and they capture certain information from you, like your email address, your your, your phone number, and so forth. You can use that as proxies uh, to you know to to reach out to them. Uh, when it comes to the actual, like I want. Um, X, Y, and Z application to connect into the you know Fire API that's been released for consumption. You know the the, the thing about the inter, the info blocking rules and and the interoperability rules in particular are you know security departments can can get involved and they can do assessments, but if the patient instructs it to be done and to be connected, that's what you got to do. I mean, it could the the application could be called. I'm going to steal all of your data and sell it on the dark web. And if the, if the patient says, send my data to that app, you got to do it, you know? And so it's really putting a lot of the, the onus into the patient's hands. And I think what healthcare organizations are trying to get their hands around is how do we, you know, to what level and degree are we, are we taking on the burden of actually evaluating and, and determining what the level of risk of these apps are and how we inform our patients of that risk in the context of the ask, you know, in knowing that it's not a block, you know, it's, it's a, it's something else. Now on the flip side of that, if, if the app, you know, the malicious app and so forth is, you know, um, is going to cause a risk to your institution and, and that, um, and, and you can determine that, you know, through your security evaluation, you can say, no, security exception, this is not permitted. Uh, so the, the evaluations there are, are, you know, really taking the, the lens of, What's the risk to my organization and, and the care that, that exists what's inside the organization? Um, and then what's the risk specifically to the patient themselves? Um, and as it relates to proxies and all of that, I think, you know, that's, we, we are learning. I'll, I'll say it that way. Um, I, I think it's new. Um, we're all sort of, as, as all new uh, rules come out and, and enforcement dates go, go in, into, into effect, you know, this is all part of that that maturing process that takes place over the first couple of years as, as we get our, our feet underneath us. Tina, one of the things that we always focus on at AHIP are the cost versus the benefits that is actually provided to an individual consumer. Could we talk a little bit about some of these emerging technologies and these various features? They all sound great, but I think some of our Listeners uh, may be thinking to themselves, gosh, we are so strapped right now in terms of resources, adding all of this additional um, 
flexibility and interoperability sounds great, but how are we going to pay for it? Could we talk a little bit about that with our panelists? Great question, Marilyn. Yes, the talent and resource shortage is a, is a big issue. We'd love to hear from you guys on that. Omar, you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the uh, talent is absolutely key. We can go get funding for technology. We can bring in the best process experts. But uh, without talent, all of that is of not very much use. So talent is in many ways foundational. And if that foundation isn't strong, then everything built on a shaky foundation is, um, is not very sustainable. And it's only a matter of time before we regret not paying attention to the, to the foundation. Um, uh, our people are burnt out. They're working a lot of hours. Uh, a lot of the ways that they would get to de-stress, a lot of the things that made work interesting, a lot of those um, shock absorbers that are sort of built into our natural work lives, a lot, most of them were taken away once everyone was asked to go home. And life is more stressful when people are working from home and they don't get to have those coffees with their teammates or go get to go out to lunch or happen upon the pantry and see that there's a birthday celebration going on. Those things matter. And particularly as we welcome new people into the organization and these new people don't have the benefit of the relationships that were formed in the office, they have a tougher time getting things done and uh, people are less likely to give you the benefit of the doubt if they don't know you, if they don't have that relationship with you. So the expectations for what we need to be doing, the risks are going up. The interoperability law is a good example of something that's regulatory driven, that's increasing our risk. Folks working from home is increasing our risk digital transformation accelerating across all healthcare organizations is something else that's increasing our risk. Uh, Highmark Health has pretty significant ambitions as it relates to how we, we want to transform healthcare and creating a world where everyone embraces health. Um, we're doing a lot of M&A, adopting a lot of technology, uh, attempting different business models, setting up a lot of JVs. Those things have an impact on individuals and their mental health and their ability to continue to perform and deliver day after day after day, uh, we spend a lot of time and energy thinking about how do we introduce some shock absorbers? How do we introduce those de-stressors? How do we lighten the load on the team? Sometimes it's hiring more people. Sometimes it's um, we spun up an entire team that's just focused on automation because the more we can automate, the less the people have to do. Uh, we used to do quarterly town halls. I now host a working well session every single week. We, I used to do some Ask the CISO sessions. Now I do one every single week. I try to go into the office, even though a lot of people aren't going to be there, try to take out people for lunch or for coffee and say, we have nothing on the agenda. My sign, my indication of success at the end of this lunch or coffee is if I can get you to smile. That's really the stuff that I need to focus on because if I take care of my people, they'll take care of keeping the organization secure. But if my people are burnt out and not able to be the best versions of themselves, um, I can ask the organization for lots and lots of money, but it really won't help. 
Well, Omar, you sound like a great manager. <laughs> and so, Jackie, how about you in terms of talent resource shortages? How, how is Sutter and how have you handled that within your organization? Yeah, it's certainly been a challenge. You know, we lost um, publicly, we lost $2 billion in the pandemic. Um, we were one of the California, Northern California, particularly one of the most first impacted areas related to the COVID pandemic. We were required to shut down um you know, procedures for a number of weeks, uh, elective procedures, that is. And so it, it kind of, cha- it's been challenging both in dealing with, um, you know, all that's going on. And I think, you know, as Omar mentioned, the burnt out workforce, that's a real issue. And I think on top of all that, um, the other thing that um, I was asked to do, just like everybody else was, was reduce staff and reduce cost and budget to be able to accommodate and make up that $2 billion dollars. And so that was really challenging. How do you continue to mitigate risk while um, cutting costs? And so you have to get pretty creative in, in identifying that. And then you also have the issue with, um, you know, you, you do have to do some layoffs. I had to do some reductions. And so how do you keep everybody motivated that's still here with, one, not feeling guilty because they're still here, and two, the work still has to get done. And oftentimes now we're asking them to do more with less. And so I think that's been a challenging balance in making sure to keep everybody motivated, um, keep them focused on the mission, keeping patients safe, and really trying to manage it. And I think any any of the regulations that are coming out that are just adding additional burden onto the workforce, it's just a really challenging time to do that because we're still very much in the thick of the pandemic and continue to have surges and continue to manage through all of these things all at the same time. And I think generally people don't have the opportunity to, to go on vacation and to, to relax like they did previously because they're at the same, you know, they're at their home working and they're at their home trying to relax and there's just not that balance. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping soon we'll see the light at the end of the tunnel with the pandemic and can, you know, build the dynamic workforce that we need and can create some stability in healthcare um, to balance all of this. Right, definitely so. And Eric, as as related to talent and resource, are you noticing shortages in at Intermountain? And how have you been handling any of the issues that relate to talent and resources around you know security and cybersecurity staff? Yeah, so we've been in the last several months. We've been working on updating our three year plan. And I actually went through a two series of retreats with my leadership team um, to help us understand what our vision and priorities are going to be. And then ultimately, you know, what, what's going to make it into the roadmap. Um, one of the first things that came out of our first retreat when we were working on vision and priorities is investing in our employee. That's actually our priority. Number one, uh, we call our employees caregivers. We, we try to, um, connect the, the, uh, the, the, prospect of providing care, you know, directly to the individual. So we actually at Intermountain refer to all of ourselves as caregivers. So um, our uh, our priority one is, is investment in caregivers and the cyber caregivers. And how we're turning that into an actual um, uh, an actual plan and what we're working on is, is a couple of fronts. Uh, so one of the silver linings of the pandemic is, you know, at Intermountain, we've really gone uh, national on hiring. Uh, I'm actually an example of that. So Intermountain's based in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm in Chicago. 
uh, and I am permanently in Chicago and, and I come into, you know, Utah a few days a month, you know, I've been there several times. Um, and, and I joined Intermountain six months ago. So I'm actually a fairly new CISO for, for the organization. And, and so, you know, I think that what that does is it opens the pool up, you know, to, to something much larger. Uh, and for those, for those uh, employees who really uh, latch on to the, the work from home experience, you know, I think that gives an opportunity to, to really get some good talent. That's one, one avenue. We call that flex work. Uh, the other avenue is we, we have a, an apprenticeship program here at Intermountain, and we're maturing, working on maturing that program uh, by bringing in um, companies like 110 or Europe, Apprenti or Autosyn. That's a, that's another one. There's four different programs, and you know, heavily focusing in not just on uh, how we bring in skills and talent that's. Um, uh, you know, through, through an apprentice, you know, lens, but also focusing in on underserved populations and, um, you know, those, uh, those potential employees who might not have gone down the traditional higher education pathway, you know, in order to get into the workforce, um, and went to uh, along a different journey and but yet they still have the same skills, same capabilities, uh, might be better than than folks who went through the traditional uh, educational pathways. So we're really, really doubling down on our equity and inclusion initiatives to you know to try to reach these populations and leverage that from a talent pool um, pipeline and and to the point of you know not just you know having a, a year long you know time with us and then you're off and and trying to find another job, but you're with us for a year. And you get hired, you know, full time into a full time role. So I'm working on HR with that right now. We haven't, um, we haven't, you know, fully completed it, but uh, that's definitely the directional place we're trying to go. And uh, you know, I think there's just lots of really good things there, um, you know, on on how we can not only you know serve our patients and our members, but uh, help open up the 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 talent population to those. Areas that are not normally there. What one uh, I'll put to put a pin on this. Sorry, one 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 quick extra thing. Um, you know, we're working on redoing our job descriptions to remove higher education requirements in our positions, uh, unless it's absolutely necessary that you have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. And so we're really focusing in on this and saying, is it about the degree or is it about the skill? And how do would we instead um, identify what the skill is? Thanks, Eric. Tina, in the time that we have remaining, I know that we're getting close to the end of our session here. I thought we could ask our presenters for something positive to look forward to in 2022. Omar, in a minute or two minutes, could you give us your outlook on that? You know, the, the thing that gets me super excited is I, I feel the relationship and alignment that we have with the business is, um, is stronger than, than, we've, uh, than we've ever had. And some of that was helped by COVID because it unified and it really clarified for us what was important. And we, we've kept that going even, even as we emerge and we've you know, started to work things well beyond COVID over the past year, year and a half. And uh, that gets me excited because uh, once we're aligned with the business, the business knows we're there to support them, enable them. Uh, we know that when we need the support from the business, it's going to be there. Uh, just yesterday, I had a call from 
the CFO of one of our largest business units saying, Omar, I was in some of these discussions. I've got some concerns. I need your team to come in and help. It wasn't me saying to the CFO, we need security. It was the CFO coming to me and saying, Omar, we think we need more security. We think we might be taking on more risk. Can your team help? And building, doing things together is, uh, is what really gives me, um, uh, gives me a lot of, uh, I get excited about the future. And I'll, I'll leave you with a uh, quote from, um, I think it comes from Confucius. And he said, if you, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I'm excited because it feels like we're going to be going together. That is inspiring. <laughs> Jackie, do you want to go next? I don't know how I can follow that, um, but I'll try. You know, I think the hopefully we're seeing the light at the end of the pandemic. Um, you know, our caregivers are, um, you know, have been doing performing miracles every day. And at the same time, so has my team. And so I think as an organization, we've learned through this um, crisis that we can operate really well in partnership and we can move a lot faster than we previously did. And so there's a lot of motivation, I think, in digital transformation and really investing in protecting our data even more than we did previously. And so I think that's exciting to me um, because we not only have the, the heightened cybersecurity landscape, but we have the ability to not only transform our digital platform, but do it in a secure way. And um, that's probably the most exciting aspect for me. And then, you know, my hope is that we can, um, you know, work really hard at um, fixing the burnout of our miracle workers and, um, you know, move in the move in a very positive direction organizationally wide. Eric. Uh, I'm going to take a different angle on this. Uh, so there's actually some really good work coming from the Fed uh, legislative side and some of the public-private partnership. Um, so for those who don't actually already know about it, uh, you should certainly look into the Health, Se Health Sector Coordinating Council and all of the awesome work that has been produced there to help um, provide great guidance on uh, cybersecurity programs and practices, things like risk management, workforce development, uh, crisis, uh, tactical crisis response, and of course the 405D program, which I'm the co-lead for on the industry side with my partner in crime on the health and human services side. We, we produced a couple of years ago a, a document called the Health Industry Cybersecurity Practices, or HICCP, H-I-C-P. Um, there's, and, and look for more. I mean, there's more coming on that, ang uh, on that end. The 405D program is actually working on developing a, uh, we're in the midst of, the, of a working document right now on cybersecurity as a component of enterprise risk management and how that all ties together, uh, really focusing on NIST's um, 8286 doc, uh, special publication that came out and how we adapt that into the healthcare context. Uh, and then the other good news is there's a new law that was just passed this year, uh, January 5th, that um, that recognizes cybersecurity practices as uh, practices that are either NIST-based or those promulgated under 405D um, as, as a recognized practice and instructs the Office for Civil Rights that if an, if an organization has adopted that over the last 12 months, they have to consider that when, when considering 
uh, civil monetary penalties, resolution agreements, or audit and oversight. So a uh, long-winded way of saying, if you've implemented cybersecurity practices, you might not get fined from OCR, you know, uh, if if you can demonstrate that if you actually have a breach with, with the whole recognition of the fact that it's impossible to stop breaches 100% of the time. But what is possible is to be very responsive and 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 detective of it and uh, have a mature program around it. And, and so in a way it kind of draws a line in the sand that describes like what is on the right side of that line versus not. Um, so check that out. It's public law 116-321. Real great, easy <laughs> number to remember. Uh, but ultimately what that did is that it amended high tech uh, to, to describe what those recognized practices are and provided that instruction to OCR. So that's really good news. That, that was a very welcome public policy change coming out of Congress that that was almost a little bit of a surprise to those of us who had been asking for that for a super, long time. Super yes. surprise. When I heard that on the 5th, I was like, you're kidding me. Yes, it was quiet. It was a quiet. It was very, very great. Well, Marilyn, I think we are running up to the end of our time together, which flew by. Um, I think Marilyn, if you if you think we've covered all our bases, we can thank our our fantastic panelists for such an interesting conversation, and would love to look you know move move forward with them at another time to continue the conversation. Well, Tina, and I want to thank you as well for all of your work in terms of putting this program together, and I also want to thank our weedy colleagues. Sam Holvey and Michael McNutt for everything that they do to help support our programming. Absolutely. Thank you everybody for your time today. We've learned a lot and I hope our listeners enjoyed the session. Have a great afternoon. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us, and be safe.